Hello, this is Father John Arthur, or Associate Pastor at Holy Ghost Catholic Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. This is our 49th installment, Man and Woman, He Created Them, A Theology of the Body, 133 talks prepared and delivered by Pope John Paul II between the years 1979 and 1984. We're indebted to Professor Michael Waldstein, whose edition we're using, The Ethos of the Redemption of the Body. At the beginning of our considerations about Christ's words in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, we observed that they contain a deep ethical and anthropological meaning. In this passage, Christ recalls the commandment, You shall not commit adultery, and adds, Whoever looks at a woman to desire her has already committed adultery with her or toward her in his heart. We are speaking about the ethical and anthropological meaning of these words because they allude to the two strictly connected dimensions of ethos and historical man. In the course of the preceding analyses, we have sought to follow these two dimensions, always keeping in mind that Christ's words address the heart, that is, the inner man. The inner man is the specific subject of the ethos of the body, and it is with this ethos that the Christ wants to impregnate the consciousness or conscience and will of his audience and his disciples. It is without doubt a new ethos. It is new in comparison with the ethos of the men of the Old Testament, as we already tried to show in more particular analyses. It is also new in comparison with the state of historical man after original sin, that is, in comparison with the man of concupiscence. It is therefore a new ethos in a universal sense and extent. It is new in relation to every human being, in a manner independent from any geographical longitude and latitude, and from any historical situation. Several times already we have called this new ethos, which emerges from the perspective of Christ's words in the Sermon on the Mount, the ethos of redemption, and more precisely the ethos of the redemption of the body. In this we followed St. Paul, who in Romans contrasts the slavery of corruption, chapter 8, verse 21, and the submission to transitoriness, chapter 8, verse 20, in which the whole creation has come to share because of sin, to the desire for the redemption of our bodies, chapter 8, verse 23. In this context, the apostle speaks about the groans of the whole creation, which cherishes the hope that it itself will be set free from the slavery of corruption to enter into the freedom of the glory of the children of God, chapter 8, verses 20 and 21. In this way, St. Paul reveals the situation of all that is created, and in particular, that of man after sin. What is significant for this situation is the aspiration that tends, together with the new adoption as sons, chapter 8, verse 23, precisely toward the redemption of the body, presented as the end, as the eschatological and mature fruit of the mystery of the redemption of man, and the world achieved by Christ. In what sense, then, can we speak of the ethos of redemption, and especially of the ethos of the redemption of the body? We must recognize that in the context of the words of the Sermon on the Mount, we have analyzed Matthew chapter 5, 
verses 27 and 28. This meaning does not yet appear in all its fullness. It will become clearer when we analyze other words of Jesus, namely those in which he refers to the resurrection. See Matthew chapter 22, verse 30, Mark chapter 12, verse 25, Luke chapter 20, verses 35 and 36. Yet there is no doubt that also in the Sermon on the Mount, Christ speaks in the perspective of the redemption of man and the world and thus precisely of the redemption of the body. This is, in fact, the perspective of the whole gospel, of the whole teaching, even more of the whole mission of Christ. And although the immediate context of the Sermon on the Mount indicates the law and the prophets as the historical point of reference proper to the people of God of the Old Covenant, nevertheless, we can never forget that in the teaching of Christ, the fundamental reference to the question of marriage and the problem of the relations between man and woman appeals to the beginning. Such an appeal can be justified only by the reality of the redemption. Outside of it, there would, in fact, remain only the threefold concupiscence, or that slavery to corruption, about which the Apostle Paul writes, Romans chapter 8, verse 21. Only the perspective of the redemption justifies the appeal to the beginning or the perspective of the mystery of creation in the whole of Christ's teaching about the problems of marriage, of man and woman, and their reciprocal relation. The words of Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, adopt definitely the same theological perspective. In the Sermon on the Mount, Christ does not invite man to return to the state of original innocence because humanity has left it irrevocably behind, but he calls him to find on the foundation of the perennial and one might say indestructible meanings of what is human, the living forms of the new man. In this way, a connection is formed, even a continuity between the beginning and the perspective of redemption. In the ethos of the redemption of the body, the original ethos of creation was to be taken up anew. Christ does not change the law, but confirms the commandment, you shall not commit adultery. At the same time, however, he leads the minds and hearts of his listeners toward that fullness of justice willed by God the creator and legislator that is contained in this commandment. This fullness must be discovered first with an interior vision of the heart, and then with an appropriate way of being and of acting. The form of the new man can come forth from this way of being and of acting in the measure in which the ethos of the redemption of the body dominates the concupiscence of the flesh and the whole man of concupiscence. Christ shows clearly that the way to attain this goal must be the way of temperance and of mastery of desires, already at the very root, already in the purely interior sphere, whoever looks to desire. The ethos of redemption contains in every context, and directly in the sphere of the concupiscence of the flesh, the imperative of self-mastery, the necessity of immediate continence and habitual temperance. Yet temperance and continence do not mean, if one may put it this way, being left hanging in the void, neither in the void of values nor in the void of the subject. 
the ethos of redemption, is realized in self-mastery, that is, in the continence of desires. In this behavior, the human heart remains bound to the value from which it would otherwise distance itself through its desire, orienting itself toward mere concupiscence, deprived of ethical value, as we said in the analysis above. On the ground of the ethos of redemption, and even deeper power and firmness confirms or restores the union with this value through an act of mastery. The value in question is that of the body's spousal meaning, the value of a transparent sign by which the Creator, together with the perennial reciprocal attraction of man and woman through masculinity and femininity, has written into the heart of both the gift of communion, that is, the mysterious reality of his image and likeness. This is the value that is at stake in the act of self-dominion and temperance, to which Christ calls us in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. This act can give the impression that one is left hanging in the void of the subject. It can give this impression particularly when one has to decide to perform it for the first time, or even more so when one has created a contrary habit, when one has habituated oneself to yield to the concupiscence of the flesh. Yet already the first time, and all the more so later when he has gained the ability, man gradually experiences his own dignity, and through temperance attests to his own self-dominion, and demonstrates that he fulfills what is essentially personal in him. In addition, he gradually experiences the freedom of the gift, which is, on the one hand, the condition for, and on the other hand, the subject's response to, the spousal value of the human body in its femininity and masculinity. Thus, the ethos of the redemption of the body is realized through self-dominion, through temperance of the desires. When the human heart makes an alliance with this ethos, or rather when it confirms this alliance through its own integral subjectivity, when the person's deepest and yet most real possibilities and dispositions show themselves, when the deepest layers of his potentiality acquire a voice, layers that the concupiscence of the flesh would not allow to show themselves. These layers cannot emerge when the human heart is fixed in permanent suspicion, as is the case in Freudian hermeneutics. They also cannot manifest themselves if the Manichaean anti-value is dominant in consciousness. The ethos of redemption, by contrast, is based on a strict alliance with these layers. Further reflections will give us other proofs of this. Concluding our analyses of Christ's momentous statement according to Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, we see that in this statement, the human heart is above all the object of a call and not of an accusation. At the same time, we must admit that the awareness of sinfulness is not only a necessary point of departure in historical man, but also an indispensable condition of his aspirations to virtue, to purity of heart, to perfection. 
The ethos of the redemption of the body remains deeply rooted in the anthropological and axiological realism of Revelation. When he appeals, in this case, to the heart, Christ formulates his words in the most concrete way. Man, in fact, is unique and unrepeatable, above all by reason of his heart, which is decisive for him from within. The category of heart is in some way the equivalent of personal subjectivity. The way of the call to purity of heart as expressed in the Sermon on the Mount is at any rate a reminiscence of original solitude, from which the man, male, was freed by opening to the other human being, to the woman. Purity of heart is explained in the end by the relation to the other subject who is originally and perennially co-called. Purity is a requirement of love. It is the dimension of the inner truth of love in man's heart. And with these words, our Holy Father, Pope John Paul II, concluded his 49th catechesis, Man and Woman, He Created Them, A Theology of the Body. To better understand or appreciate this 49th catechesis, Man and Woman, He Created Them, A Theology of the Body of Pope John Paul II, good for us to remember that we are in chapter 2, Christ Appeals to the Human Heart. The Lord Jesus did not come to redeem the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, the beasts of the land, but to redeem human beings, human persons, yourself, myself, everyone who has been or ever will be. He appeals to our hearts. Blessed are the pure of heart. The Lord Jesus appeals to our hearts in his Sermon on the Mount. And so Pope John Paul II addressed the questions of the day in light of the Sermon on the Mount. He addresses the man of concupiscence, that is, the man who has a tendency to sin, which is each of us. And there is a threefold concupiscence, as St. John reminds us in his first letter, a concupiscence of the eyes, a concupiscence of the flesh, and the pride of life, these threefold tendencies to sin. And some would attempt to limit a concupiscence of the flesh to sexual sins only. But we know that intemperance, too much or too little eating of food, is also a concupiscence of the flesh. We need to eat a balanced diet for good physiology, but also for good spirituality. Because if we're too tired, we don't have enough strength, how will we be able to pray? Or how will we be able to do good works glorifying God, whose good work on the cross on Good Friday, is the source of our salvation. Pope John Paul II has addressed commandments and ethos, the commandment of God, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not covet your neighbor wife. Those are the sixth and ninth commandments, but also the ethos of the gospel, which is not only not to commit adultery, not to covet your neighbor's wife, but to have purity of heart, not even to look with a sinful desire upon another. That's the ethos of the gospel. Pope John Paul II has addressed in this second chapter, Christ appeals to the human heart, whether or not the heart is accused or called. And he has come down on the side, of course, that the human heart is called. The Lord has appealed to the human heart. He did not come to condemn us, but to save us, to redeem us. And he has called us in the depths of our being, in the depths of our hearts, not only by his good words, calling us to holiness verbally, but also by the holiness of his life. He did not ask us, he does not ask us to do what he has not 
would not do himself. He does not force us to be holy, to embrace his gospel, his saving doctrine. He highly recommends it. He encourages it even still through his bride, Mother Church. But the fifth section of this second chapter of Man and Woman, He Created Them, A Theology of the Body, which we heard today, addresses the ethos of the redemption of the body. It's very important. Christ has redeemed us, whole and entire, body and soul, in his death and resurrection, body and soul. And so being a people who have been redeemed, the death and resurrection of Christ, a people who are being redeemed, working out with fear and trembling our salvation, a people who will be redeemed in God's mercy if we correspond to his justice, past, present, and future. The ethos of the redemption of the body. If I have been redeemed, if I am being redeemed, if I want to be redeemed, I will act accordingly. And that's what our Holy Father addresses in this 49th Catechesis. So he addresses an anthropological meaning and an ethical meaning. The ethical meaning, what good should we do? What evil should we avoid? The anthropological meaning, how is this in relation to man, the human subject? There is an ethical meaning of the commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Don't act out. In Spanish, they say, no hacer actos impuros. Do not do impure acts. Our English is restrictive. You shall not commit adultery. Well, sure, we're not supposed to commit adultery, but also we're not to do impure acts. That's the ethical meaning of the commandment. The anthropological meaning, cats don't commit adultery. Buffalo or bison do not commit adultery. They are not moral subjects, moral actors, as human beings are. There is an ethical meaning to the Sermon on the Mount. Whoever looks at a woman to desire her has already committed adultery with her toward her in his heart. The ethical meaning Look with a purity of your gaze, the way you open your eyes and see another. The ethical meaning, don't be scamming around looking at everything you can with your eyes. The anthropological meaning, the way I look at someone impacts me. It impacts the one I look upon. Human person, human subjects, worthy of respect, made in the image and likeness of God, redeemed by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God and true man. These two meanings, the ethical meaning and the anthropological meaning of the commandment of the Sermon on the Mount, allude to two strictly connected dimensions of ethos and historical man. Ethos, the customs, the manners, how we live, and historical man, that is, ourselves. A fallen race, but a redeemed race. This is the ethos of the redemption. So, will we live as if Christ has not come? Will we live as if Christ has not called us to holiness? As if he has not appealed to our human hearts? Or will we live according to his call to holiness? I can just imagine Pope John Paul II delivering this 49th Catechesis with a big smile on his face when he spoke, when he wrote, Christ wants to impregnate the consciousness, the conscience and will of his audience and his disciples. It's a sexual illusion, no doubt to impregnate the consciousness, the conscience, and the will of his audience. Here we see the Lord exercising a spiritual paternity to affect the way we think, our consciousness, and what we desire and how we desire our will. Not only of those his first auditors, those who heard him back then, when he first spoke the Sermon on the Mount, 
but even all of his disciples down to our own day, down to the day, the moment when he returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. Christ wants to bring new life to our understanding, to our conscience. The ability to judge, this is good, I should do it. This is evil, I should avoid it or repent it if I've done it. The new ethos of the gospel, the ethos of the redemption of the body, is compared by Pope John Paul II here with the ethos of the Old Testament. We see that already in the commandment, you shall not commit adultery or you shall not do impure acts. Well, that's good, but there's more to life than just exteriority, just corporality, materiality. There is also the inner dimension, the dimension of the soul, not only of the body. We are composites. The new ethos of redemption of the body, the ethos of the gospel, is holistic. The new ethos of the redemption of the body is also compared with the historical man after original sin, the man of concupiscence, the man who has a tendency to sin. And we have that even those who are baptized. So we continually need to return to the source of grace, who is Christ himself, who continues his outpouring of grace and mercy through his bride mother church through the sacraments of redemption not only holy baptism in which we begin our life in christ but also in the sacrament of mercy or healing reconciliation called penance also in the sacrament of his very body and blood the sacrament of the altar holy communion the eucharist here we have comparisons between the new ethos in the ethos of the Old Testament, the ethos of historical man, man in time, a man who has fallen, a man who has been redeemed, a man who is working out in fear and trembling his own salvation with God's grace and the help of brothers and sisters in Christ. The redemption of the body has a goal. It's eschatological. We're shooting for heaven It has a goal for the mature fruit. When we live according to the holy will of God for us, we are bearing that fruit, and the eschaton, the end of time, looks good for us. Pope John Paul continues his 49th Catechesis by reminding us that in the Sermon on the Mount, Christ speaks in the perspective of the redemption of man and the world, and that this is the perspective of the whole gospel the whole teaching, the whole mission of Christ. Christ is not just fixating on the libido or on our sexuality, but on the whole person, the redemption of man, the whole gospel, to feed the hungry, to house the homeless, to clothe the naked. But yes, this part too, to be pure of heart. That's part of the gospel, and without it, the gospel is not the gospel. Without it, the teaching of Christ is incomplete. And his mission is incomplete unless we accept the whole of it, unless we allow him to redeem us entirely. Our desires, our actions, alone and with others. The Sermon on the Mount gives us the perspective of the redemption of man, which harkens back to the beginning when we were made, male and female, in the divine image we were made, all the way until the eschaton, until the end of time when he returns in glory to judge us according to our deeds, according to our desires. How will it go for us? In his mercy we pray well, but we need to accept the whole gospel, the whole teaching, the whole mission of Christ, which includes the theology of the body, our very selves, made in the image of God, redeemed by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Pope John Paul II specifies that only the perspective of the redemption justifies Christ's appeal to the beginning, or the perspective of the mystery of creation in the whole of Christ's teaching. And Christ teaches us about the problems of marriage. Christ teaches us about man and woman. Christ teaches us about the reciprocal relations of man and woman. Christ speaks these things. He teaches these things personally during his time on earth, before his death and resurrection and ascension, and still as we await his return in glory through his bride, Mother Church. And Pope John Paul II was fulfilling this aspect in these 133 conferences, The Theology of the Body. It is the perspective of redemption. It is the perspective of the mystery of creation, the problems of marriage. What are the problems of marriage? There are people in 2011 who say there's no such thing as marriage, or marriage can be whatever you want it to be. But Jesus Christ reminds us in the beginning, God made the male and female. For this reason, a husband leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Till death do they part, in good times and in bad, in sickness and in health. Wholesale divorce and remarriage, this is a problem of marriage. And Christ addresses it. The church addresses it. Christ teaches us about ourselves, man and woman, male and female, part of the good creation. Christ teaches us about our relationships, one with each other. In the Sermon on the Mount, he reminds us not to look with a lustful desire, a disordered desire upon the other let alone to act out disorderly. Christ does not change the law, you shall not commit adultery, but he confirms the commandment, not only not to do the deed, not to act out, not to be an adulterer or fornicator, but don't even have that look, that way of looking or desiring other people. Blessed are the pure of heart. This is Christ's confirmation of the sixth and ninth commandments. Pope John Paul II continues his 49th catechesis, man and woman, he created them by saying, the ethos of the redemption contains in every context and directly in the sphere of the concupiscence of the flesh, the imperative of self-mastery, the necessity of immediate continence and habitual temperance. Three things here jumping out. Imperative of self-mastery. That's another way of saying virtue to live according to our nature. Because if I am a virtuous man, then I am self-possessed. I'm not a slave to my passions, to my whims, to my desires. The ethos of the redemption contains the imperative of self-mastery. It contains the necessity of immediate continence, of habitual temperance. I always think of Goldilocks when I think of temperance because she had a bed that was too soft or too hard but found one which was just right. And temperance is not too much and not too little, but enough. The temperance movement in the United States prohibiting alcohol consumption was abstinence, not temperance. And there's a difference. The last part of this 49th catechesis Man and woman, he created them a theology of the body, which we can treat today, concerns our human dignity, the dignity of a human being, attested to and experienced through temperance and self-dominion. If I allow myself to just be a slave to my passions, I deny my human dignity. 
If I encourage someone else to be just a slave to their passions, I deny them their human dignity. Who of us does not want to have the great experience of knowing the fullness of our being, the greatness of being a human being, human dignity? I'm not a toad. I'm not a stone. And neither are you. You're made in the image of God. I'm made in the image of God. So we should act like it. And part of our human dignity is experienced in self-dominion. I'm in charge of myself. I know what good I should do, and I'm going to do it. I know what evil I shouldn't do, and I'm not going to do that. Too much of a good thing? Bad. Vicious. Not enough of a good thing? Vicious on the other side. Proper place for human sexuality to be exercised in the nuptial embrace is just there, within holy marriage between one man and one woman for life. And this is an experience. And this is an attestation of human dignity and everything which is contrary to chaste marital love is a degradation of human dignity. Until next time, God bless you.